From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. This May, Iraqis went to the polls to elect a new parliament, and for the first time, security was not the biggest issue. The next chapter of Iraq, it will be far more difficult than the previous one, because meeting the demands of people is harder than defeating ISIS. Domestic issues took precedence, and many turned to outspoken Shiite cleric Muqtada al-Sadr. Sadr represents the poor, impoverished Shia streets in Baghdad. So what happens next, and what does this mean for the United States? Muqtada hates the United States. How do we relate to someone who has defined himself by his enmity toward the United States? Join us as we explore these questions on Iraq's next steps on America Abroad. From Public Radio International, this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. Celebrations on the streets of Baghdad after a surprise announcement by Iraq's election commission. A powerful Shiite cleric who led two uprisings against U.S. troops in Iraq. Cleric Moqtada al-Sadr's block has won the Iraq election. On May 12th, Iraqis voted in parliamentary elections, the first time since ISIS was defeated. A lot was at stake for Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi. He's a pro-Western leader, but he has not been able to do much about widespread corruption in Iraq, and voters are fed up. They gave a big victory to a political rival, anti-American cleric Muqtada al-Sadr. His party won a majority of the seats in Iraq's parliament, meaning the power dynamic in Iraq has shifted. Recently, America Abroad convened a town hall discussion at the United States Institute of Peace to talk about the elections and the implications not just for Iraq, but for the broader Middle East and for U.S. foreign policy. Our moderator for the discussion was Joshua Johnson, host of the WAMU program 1A. Welcome to Iraq's Next Steps, America Abroad's town hall discussion here at the United States Institute of Peace in Washington. Joining us on the panel today is Sirhang Hamasaid. He's the director of Middle East programs here at the United States Institute of Peace. His work focuses on reconciliation and post-conflict stabilization in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. Also with us on the panel is Denise Natali, the Director for Strategic Research at the National Defense University. She has worked in the Kurdish regions of Iraq, Iran, Turkey, and Syria, focusing on post-conflict relief and security issues. Now she provides security analysis to the Department of Defense. And Ken Pollack, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, he served on the National Security Council as Director of Persian Gulf Affairs, and before that, he was a Persian Gulf military analyst at the CIA. Let's have a warm welcome for all our panelists today. Let's talk a little bit about the ethnic and religious makeup of Iraq. Sarhang Hama Saeed, I think this is one aspect of the Iraq story that has most people the most confused by it because there are so many interchanging parts and so many factions with overlapping but differing needs and wants. Tell us a bit about the difference between the Sunni Muslims, the Shiite Muslims, and the Kurds. Well, Iraq is a country that is known for its diversity, diversity of the different uh, different ethnicities, Kurds, Arabs, Turkmen's. It's a country known for religious diversity uh, in terms of uh, religion of Islam, Christianity, Yazidis, Kakais, and others. So you will see in the country uh, political um, uh, parties that represent those uh, ethno-sectarian diversities, uh, but also 
political diversities in terms of the role of the religion in uh, in politics and uh, the secularist uh, party that uh, believes in the civilian state. So in Iraq, all these diversities uh, were at play on the May 12th elections. Are Sunni Muslims, Shiite Muslims encouraged the three main groups that are at, that were at play in the election in terms of the major players, or were there others that people should know about? No, there are others. Uh, Sunni Arabs, Shia Arabs, you have Kurds who are Shia, Christians, uh, you have Yazidis, you have Kakais, you have about a dozen minority groups uh, in Iraq. So Iraq is very diverse. So I take this before I come to Denise to mean that in understanding the Iraqi election, coalitions and alliances are going to be really important for us to pay attention to as we continue our conversation. Absolutely. You can't govern Iraq without them. Denise, Natali, take us back to the founding of modern Iraq. What are the main bones that these different factions have to pick with one another? Sure. When the modern Iraqi state was created, the tensions between groups are not exactly the way that they are today. Note that the dissipation of the Ottoman Empire meant that some of the very traditional socioeconomic groups, the Sunni establishment that was the dominant, let's say, category of, of political identities at the time, was in tensions with some secular groups. There were Christian-Muslim tensions. There were tensions between local groups who wanted to retain the Ottoman Empire and those who were battling against those creating new boundaries of the new state system. So some of the groups that Sarhang just talked about, Kurds, Shia, Sunni Arabs, that was not necessarily the way that Iraq was fighting each other at the time. Many of the Kurds in the 1900s, the early 1900s, were, were very much in support of remaining with the Ottoman Empire. Some, most did not want a Kurdish state. And so there were very big differences. One of the biggest, though, that plays out today as well is between the traditional sheikh establishment of tribes and some of the secular groups. So what Iraq would look like over the last 100 years played out not just between ethnic groups and uh, non-ethnic groups or religious groups, but between these groups together. So there have been tensions between Kurdish groups throughout the last hundred years and between some Arab groups as well. Denise, what about the drawing of borders? Uh, the British and the French decided where Iraq's borders would be. I imagine they didn't do it with perfect regard to who was living there. How much of that has fueled what's happening today? In Iraq, some of it, but really, quite frankly, not all of it. Um, if you look back, it, it's very easy to say the Treaty of Sevres did not you know, refuse the Kurds a state, and this is an artificial state. I, I don't really buy the artificial state argument because I don't know what a natural state's supposed to be. Um, but nonetheless, some of it was portions of Iraq today, a small portion with portions of Turkey, could have been a Kurdish state or parts of Mosul small part of it. But a lot of what's going on today, in fact, is um, a byproduct of successive policies of successive Iraqi governments over time and regional governments between these ethnic groups. Ken Pollack, talk about the impact of the United States. When did the U.S. start to become significantly involved in Iraq? Was it mostly with the onset of the Gulf War? Or was it before that? Well, the first real involvement between the United States and Iraq starts during the Iran-Iraq War 
when the United States decides that we're not going to allow the Iranians to win the Iran-Iraq war, and so we side with Saddam. Um, but of course, it, it grows enormously thereafter. After the Iran-Iraq war, Saddam makes the uh, foolish decision to invade Kuwait. The United States leads a 30-nation coalition to evict the Iraqis uh, from Kuwait. The Bush administration, the first Bush administration, I think did a brilliant job putting together a coalition, evicting Saddam from Kuwait, but then unfortunately made the assumption that it would cause Saddam to fall from power, the defeat all by itself. And of course, that didn't happen. And so then we get into 12 years of horrific sanctions and isolation of Iraq, which scarred Iraqi society, which started to worsen some of the internal tensions. And then, of course, in 2003, we make the decision to invade the country. And the real problem there is that we decide to invade, and we make no effort to actually govern it afterwards. We create a security vacuum, and Iraq, like other states that have been put in similar circumstances, descends into chaos, warlordism, and civil war. And so a lot of the different problems between these different sectarian and ethnic groups that both Sarhang and Denise were talking about, they really explode during that period. And these are tensions that were there exactly the way they described it. But you have to understand that when you put people in a Hobbesian state of nature, the way that the United States did in 2003, you were going to wind up with conflict regardless of how amicable things were beforehand. You're listening to America Abroad's discussion on the future of Iraq and foreign policy here at the United States Institute of Peace. I'm Joshua Johnson. Joining us today are Sarhang Hamasai, Director of Middle East Programs at the U.S. Institute of Peace, Denise Natali, Distinguished Researcher at the Institute for National Strategic Studies, and Ken Pollack, Resident Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Ken Pollack, talk about Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party. What more do we need to know about him and his party to make the Iraq story make sense? I think, you know, other than the fact that the relationship with the U.S. was always very fraught, tell us more about him and his party. Sure. Let me start with Saddam because it's by far the more important part of the story. Saddam was one of the worst tyrants of the 20th century, and he traumatized Iraqi society. Um, one of my favorite lines about Iraq was a journalist who, before the invasion of Iraq, um, he had this wonderful line. He said, I hate going to Saddam's Iraq. It's like crawling inside someone else's nightmare. Saddam studied Joseph Stalin. He idolized Joseph Stalin. He took Stalin's terror state to its logical or illogical extreme. And every Iraqi still carries that with them. Um, even those who were born afterwards grew up in the shadow of Saddam. And it continues to pervade the atmosphere, the distrust, the fear, uh, the legacy of harm that each side or different groups did to one another. His Ba'ath Party was simply a vehicle for Saddam. It, it existed before him. It had a life before Saddam. But he, of course, took it over, very much the way that Stalin did the Communist Party, and he made it his own. And what became important about the Ba'ath Party was that it really was simply a vehicle for loyalty to Saddam and patronage by which Saddam took the resources of the Iraqi state and distributed them to a certain extent to the people below him. You wanted a good job, you had to be a member of the Ba'ath Party. You wanted uh, extra benefits, you had to become a member of the, the Ba'ath Party. And of course, not everyone was allowed to be part of the Ba'ath Party. It's worth noting there were Kurds who were in the Ba'ath Party, there were Shia in the Ba'ath Party. Everyone in Iraq 
could join in, in some way, shape, or form, but not every community had equal representation in the Ba'ath. And after we overthrew Saddam, for a great many Shia and a great many Kurds and Turkmen and others, they felt that their somewhat exclusion from the Ba'ath and the fact that the Ba'ath was really Saddam's party, which he used to keep himself in power, which he used to reward his greatest loyalists, that then became a mark of shame, a mark that, that uh, picked you out as someone who was with Saddam. Before I come back to Sarhang, what was it, Ken, that allowed Saddam Hussein to take over the Ba'ath Party? Was it a weakened party that he just capitalized on? Did he just know what to say to the right people? How did he do that? Uh, in, in a word, Joshua, I'd say it's ruthlessness. Um, Saddam recognized uh, the structure of the party, understood people's weaknesses, and was willing to do things that no one else was was often willing to use violence, horrific violence, when other people weren't. Um, Saddam once said that I know uh, that someone is going to be a coup plotter even before he knows it. In other words, if, you even, if Saddam even suspected you of being somewhat disloyal, he would kill you, and not just kill you, he'd kill your whole family, he'd kill every person you met. He would do whatever was necessary to impose that fear on everyone out there in a way that very few other people are willing to do so. Before I come back to Sarhang, Denise, Natalia, you wanted to jump in? I just wanted to add, and I agree with what uh, Ken said, another way that Saddam was able to gain authority is through co-optive means of compliance. That is, in addition to coercion, you had an Iraqi oil state, and then what developed as part of Ba'athism was a social welfare state reliant on oil revenues. So Saddam could also create a large distributive mechanism so that everything was free, develop and nationalize the Iraqi oil industry even before he became president, so that you also have what may sound unthinkable, but there were also people who, who supported him or bought into it, not because they liked him, because he was authoritarian or dictator, was because the 70s was the golden age of Iraq and many people became very, very wealthy. Many of the biggest supporters of Saddam were some of the tribal groups as well. And this has been going on, uh, that had been going on, in addition to coercive means of compliance. Sarhang Hamasaid, after the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, forced Saddam Hussein out of power, the Kurds eventually gained a much stronger position in Iraqi politics. How has the Kurdish national movement changed since the American invasion of Iraq? This was a change not only for the Kurds, this was a big change for the Kurds and the Shia and some other uh, communities. For the Kurds, it was the closest they came, actually, to uh, having close to an independent state in the sense that uh, the structure of the Kurdistan regional government that they had formed in 1992 uh, was called a de facto government until 2003, but after 2003, they enshrined it in the Iraqi constitution, the Kurdish Peshmerga to be part of the Iraqi defense system. The federalism, a federal structure for Iraq, became uh, formalized, and that gave them diplomatic access to the international community, actually which they had, but it formalized it. It gave them economic resources like never before. It gave them the means to participate in governance in Baghdad and in the direction of the country. Denise, I was going to ask you to follow up on, on that with regards to the Kurds. You had mentioned in Iraq's history that the Kurds have had varying views on a state, on, on territory. What about today, particularly going into the election? How much does the idea of a fully independent Kurdish state factor for Iraqi Kurds today? 
Yeah, I would start with, I wouldn't look at any self-determination movement or na a national group as an ethnically homogenous group. Um, that would set the Kurds up for something that's unrealistic, as well as any other group. They're not ethnically homogenous in their demands, and that difference historically has played out in the groups between the more traditional uh, establishment, the conservative, whether that be tribal groups or, or sheikhs or religious leaders, and some of the left-leaning socialist groups, urban educated. Those two main factions have been competing with each other for relevance, if you will, over the last several years. So now what you have today is some of that playing out at the political level, but now on the streets, it's different. What has changed now between these divisions is over the last, particularly over the last, let's say, seven years, 10 years, some of the, the abilities to, to create an, trying to create an independent oil sector, a non-transparent oil sector, the non-deliverance of, of services, has made those differences not just between the two political parties, but between the people and the government, between the political elites and the Kurdish nationalist streets. And so it's really not that different than what you've seen in other countries in the world where people are challenging the political elites because they want their services. But I would say that this is one of the most important divides inside the Kurdistan region today. That's Denise Natali of National Defense University speaking during a recent town hall on the future of Iraq. The discussion was moderated by Joshua Johnson of the WAMU program 1A. The other panelists were Sarhong Hamsaid of the United States Institute of Peace and Ken Pollack of the American Enterprise Institute. When we return, we'll take a closer look at Iraq's parliamentary election results, which gave Shiite cleric Muqtada al-Sadr a big political boost. He has redefined himself as very much a kind of arch-nationalist and a champion of the average person who wanted less corruption, better governance, more efficiency. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to America Abroad. You're listening to Iraq's Next Steps on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. This hour, we're featuring our town hall discussion recorded before a live audience at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington. Our panelists were Sarong Hamsahid, director of the Institute's Middle East programs, Denise Natali, director for strategic research at National Defense University, and Ken Pollack, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Now we'll take a closer look at the recent parliamentary elections in Iraq. The pro-Western prime minister there, Haider al-Abadi's party, lost ground to the coalition supported by Shiite cleric Muqtada al-Sadr. In the coming months, there will be a lot of jockeying as the different factions come together to form a coalition government. Here's our moderator for the discussion, Joshua Johnson, host of 1A on NPR. Ken, let me come to you. Let's talk about this election. What were the main issues going into it? How much was this a referendum on the prime minister, Haider al-Abadi, and how much was this related to other things? Well, one of the more interesting things about it, Joshua, I think that we uh, suspected this going in, but the vote itself really made it clear, was where the Iraqi people were on all of this. I think that going into it, a lot of different people had a lot of different ideas about what this election might be about. What the results demonstrated is that for the vast majority of Iraqis, what it really was about was finding a government that could actually deliver services, could provide benefits, get the economy going, and curb corruption. Right? Those were the critical issues. And again, 
I think all of us knew that this was out there, but different people thought that it might be about defeating ISIS and it might be about ties with Iran. And instead, it became very much focused on the set of core issues about running the government, about the domestic economy, about the role of corruption. Ken, I hate to oversimplify this, but it sounds like you're saying people were just voting for a government that could govern. Well, they were looking for the government that could govern. This is the issue, Joshua, is what we see coming out of it is actually a very fragmented political picture. Everybody's talking about Muqtada Sadr winning this great victory. Uh, he didn't. This is a very small plurality that he won. And in fact, what we saw was a whole variety of different parties winning more or less similar numbers of seats. And I think that what you really want to take away from that is Iraqis were looking for someone who could actually provide them with good governance, with efficient administration, with anti-corruption. And they couldn't find it. They didn't know who to vote for. And so different people voted for different leaders in the hope that one of them might do it. But let's also remember, in many ways, the biggest takeaway from this election, Joshua, is how many people didn't vote. You had almost a 30% drop in actual voter participation between this election and the previous two. I did want to ask you about voter turnout, but before we do that, you mentioned Muqtada al-Sadr. Give us the thumbnail sketch of who he is. Very powerful Shia cleric, has had kind of an evolving public <laughs> image over the years. Yeah, he's a bit of a cipher, right? I don't think any of us knows really what to make of him. He is the younger child of a very famous Shia family. He wasn't very much before the U.S. invasion of Iraq, but in the chaos that followed, he stood up, he struck a very nationalist figure, was willing to use violence, but also tried to reward and take care of the people who supported him, got very closely tied to Iran and got beat up for doing that. The United States and the Iraqi government really hammered him for that, forced him to redefine himself. And he has redefined himself as very much a kind of arch-nationalist and a champion of the average person, the average Shia in particular, who wanted less corruption, better governance, more efficiency. Right? And ultimately, what we saw in the election was that it looks like Muqtada simply lost less than everybody else, and that allowed him to emerge ahead. Again, it's been a very rocky road for him, and I don't think that we should be anointing him as the new king of Iraq. He isn't. He's, at best, first among equals, but he is fine. The, the worm has finally turned in his direction. Sarhang, I was just going to ask you about that in terms of what it means for Muqtada al-Sadr's surprise showing and the future of Iraq's parliament. First of all, who is surprised by this? Who did this catch off guard? And then what does this possibly mean going forward? That's a great question of who was surprised. I think looking at it from the Iraqi perspective, you see the same diversity or division, whichever term you go with uh, in Iraq's politics. Uh, so Muqtada Sadr uh, represents a segment of the Iraqi uh, society, as Ken mentioned, the poor Shia mostly. And he has made an interesting alliance with uh, secularist groups and communist groups who call for reform in Iraq. You also see a group led by the Fatah coalition, so strong Shia and Iranian influence there. You see a coalition of the Kurds or a group of the Kurds that if they form together, they will represent 40 to 50 seats of the Kurds. So that diversity or division in the political landscape of Iraq 
for the most part, remains the same. What is surprising for people is that someone like Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, who had a lot of wins under his belt going into the election in terms of a win against ISIS, a win in terms of regional engagement with the rest of the Middle East, and also a win in terms of suppressing the Kurdish independence vote and redeploying federal authority to disputed territories, but not translating that into a bigger victory. So Sadr's surprise in the sense that he did better than the others. But in terms of his historic performance in the elections, he's about the same range. And Denise, before I let you comment, I just want to make sure that we're clear, Salhang. We, we're talking about Muqtada al-Sadr's coalition. He was not on a ballot. Like, it wasn't him running. No, no, he was not on a ballot. He supported a coalition that represented specific issues that the Shia base and others cared about. Gotcha. Just wanted to make sure we're clear on that. Denise? Yeah, I just want to add, and I, and I fully agree with both Ken and Sarhang, particularly about don't overdetermine Sadr. I mean, he won seats, but if you look at where he won his majority, it was still in a very concentrated area. He didn't win outside of his Shia base, whereas Fatah the alliance of popular mobilization forces under Emory, for example, they have won in areas outside of Shia regions, such as Anbar, such as Kirkuk, even if they were fifth, but, but certainly areas outside of their, their, their zone. So that's one part. But in addition, and, and Sarhan, about Sadr himself, in addition to the religious component is a socioeconomic component. Sadr represents the poor, impoverished, Shia streets in Baghdad. So we, back to your question, how surprising, from an outside view, um, you may look at this because what you read in the press is a very articulate prime minister, a body, you know, pretty much everybody thinks he's a decent person, and he is. But from an inside view, this was about, as Ken said, who can deliver services, who can fight against corruption. And, and I heard this over and over again before the election as well, is who's going to be able to push back the militia? And a point to be made, since 2003, Sadr's the first person to win this many votes who wasn't from the diaspora. Again, this reflects this local Iraqi nationalist movement within about fixing the Iraqi state. Beg your pardon, when you say he wasn't from the diaspora? Yeah, he wasn't a leader that left Iraq and was brought in to lead this party. Sadr remained in Iraq. You're listening to America Abroad's discussion on the future of Iraq and foreign policy here at the United States Institute of Peace. I'm Joshua Johnson. Joining us today are Sarhang Hamasai, Director of Middle East Programs at the U.S. Institute of Peace, Denise Natali, Distinguished Researcher at the Institute for National Strategic Studies, and Ken Pollack, Resident Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Ken, since Denise mentioned pushing back militia, what about the broader fight against ISIS and extremism? What do the conditions look like now, and how much does the threat of ISIS still remain a factor in Iraq, politically or otherwise? Yeah, there are still pockets of ISIS still in Iraq. Um, they are trying to remain relevant. They conduct attacks. They kill people. They blow things up. They're not the biggest, most important problem in Iraq today. I think that we have consistently exaggerated the importance of ISIS as an entity in and of itself. And what we've consistently downplayed are the circumstances in Iraq, the context which gave rise to ISIS. And so you're asking the question about, okay, what's the threat from ISIS? The threat from the group is there, but it's not terribly significant. What's really significant is the potential for those same circumstances to reemerge. 
right? Once again, we're seeing an election where the Iraqi people, they've participated in democracy, they like democracy, they want it, but they are frustrated. They are not getting the kind of life that they believe they deserve. They have a corrupt leadership that they feel like is not delivering for them. They are searching for answers, right? If they don't get answers, the question becomes, where do they go next? Do they go looking for another group, whether it be like ISIS or the Shia militias or somebody else who might deliver it in a more unsavory way? Sarhan? Yes, we are at an interesting point in Iraq's history where you see enough evidence and indicators of seeing a change towards nonviolent change in Iraq. So someone like Muqtada Sadr from a militia leader to organizing sit-ins is a positive thing. But for the Iraqi communities, tribal leaders in areas liberated from ISIS trying to come together and heal and the sense of voluntarism that you see in a lot of communities to rebuild with very, very limited or no resources, these are all positive things. For the first time, people are coming to rebuild their communities and not asking the state to do it for them. But also, Iraq is, in another way, at a more dangerous place compared to four years ago when we had ISIS take a lot of parts. This is where you have the militarization in the community and the many armed groups are there. The conditions that contributed to the rise of ISIS is more complicated. The Iraqi society, in certain ways, is more divided. The wounds that conflict with ISIS left behind, the tactics that ISIS used to divide the community are there. So the next government is really crucial to be inclusive enough that can represent the issues that will deal with those problems and not go back to the politics of usual of Iraq. Can you give an example of how that's changed, of, of what some of those seeds of division are that are there now? ISIS used members of the Sunni community to perpetrate crimes like the Spiker Massacre, in which they killed uh, 1,700 Shia cadets. Uh, they have used members of certain tribes in Anbar against other tribes. They did the same. So Sunni tribes, Sunni Arab tribes were used by ISIS against Sunni Arab tribes, against the Shia, against the Kurds, against the Yazidis and the religious minorities. Those are communal divisions that this conflict is leaving behind that requires careful work. And there are Iraqis who are taking the responsibility at the community level. They are trying to deal with these problems. But this is where Iraq is most vulnerable at the communal level. We're speaking to Sarhang Hamasaid, Director of Middle East Programs at the United States Institute of Peace. We are at USIP for America Abroad's discussion on the future of Iraq and foreign policy. We're also speaking to Denise Natali, Distinguished Research Fellow at the National Defense University, and Ken Pollack, Resident Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. We'll get to some questions from our audience in just a few minutes, but first let's talk a little bit more about the future and about the election. Haider al-Abadi, the Prime Minister of Iraq, wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post on May 18th. I'd like to read you a piece of his op-ed and get some of your reaction. It reads in part, quote, I said in October that our nation would remain united, and it has. I vowed that elections would be held on time in every part of the country, and they have. I promised our people that we would liberate our land from terrorism, and this has been delivered. I now declare to our people that the next four years will witness a tremendous transformation for Iraq, if the right government is in place. My vision is to reform our economy and defeat corruption, provide jobs to the millions of young people who make up the majority of our population, continue the improvement of public services, and ensure that human rights and female empowerment are actively pursued and justice is extended to all. 
If chosen as prime minister again, I will fight to achieve these critical advances every day that I lead the country, unquote. That is from an op-ed written by Iraqi Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi. Ken Pollack, what stood out to you from the prime minister's op-ed? Some of the statements he made, promises he made, and achievements that he touted. Sure. And I'll start by saying I thought he hit every single right note. The question I had was, why do it in English in an American newspaper? I would have voted for him uh, based on that. But He sounds I, pretty good on paper. I didn't, exactly. I didn't get to vote. For Iraqis, you know, I want to go back to a point that Denise made. I think she's absolutely right. My own experiences with Haider al-Abadi, I think he is a very good man. I think that his heart is absolutely in the right place. I actually think that most Iraqis would say that. And we had some polls before the election that indicated that most Iraqis believe that too. I think that the question mark for many Iraqis that you saw play out in the election was whether this good, well-intentioned man could actually deliver on what they wanted that he had been in office for four years, and what they saw was he hadn't been able to curb corruption. He hadn't been able to put in place a reform agenda, all things that he had promised that I think he genuinely wants. And the question becomes, well, was that his fault or was that the circumstances he was in? He and his aides will say, listen, I had a fragmented government. I had to fight ISIS. I had all these other problems I needed to deal with. I couldn't deal with that. That may well be. I think what we're seeing, though, is in the electorate, that that message didn't resonate with them. Denise, what stood out to you about the prime minister's remarks, or his, his op-ed, rather? Well, nothing that hasn't already been said to Western audiences. I would even agree with it. But many of those statements I would say to people that I spoke to in Iraq just even a month ago. And the response was, but... They didn't still tackle corruption, a lot of what Ken said, too. So that was less important than, one, the immediate, here was the last few years, the corruption wasn't handled. And there's something else that I don't even think that this is an issue of Prime Minister Abadi, which is, on the one hand, many people in Iraq will still say, we want democracy, we believe in all of the changes that are occurring, and then we want a really strong leader as well. I mean, well, we not want someone like Saddam, but someone who's a strong man. It doesn't make sense. Well, you want a democratic individual who is committed to going through the process without violence, but he's not strong enough. And some of this just doesn't plays out in why many didn't vote for him as well. Sarhang? It was also interesting for me that it was in English and in the Washington Post. I think he is reminding the American public that he has delivered on a number of things in Iraq. He was a good partner, and he hopes that he will get their support in the next government formation. Uh, Because the perception of the people in the region is that, yes, you can have the support of the United States, but when the political winds change, then the U.S. may go for another candidate. Uh, So if a new coalition forms and votes for another prime minister, the U.S. will be supportive. When the State Department spokesman spoke after the win of Sutter, they did not specify which prime minister they favor. They say they will hope to continue a positive relationship with the next prime minister of Iraq. And for him and probably for his close aides, this may signal the U.S. may not be committed in supporting him. And this is a tough choice for the United States. Yes, they know Prime Minister Abadi was a good partner and he delivered a number of things. But the weaknesses that Ken and also Denise mentioned, the U.S. also saw those. The next chapter of Iraq, it will be far more difficult than the previous one because meeting the demands of people, in my view, is harder than defeating ISIS. 
and that is the chapter that the Iraqis are not confident that the prime minister can deliver on. And even Grand Ayatollah al-Sistani, who support, and this is important, I think, for, for people to know, uh, the Grand Shia cleric uh, in Najaf came out full force supporting Prime Minister Abadi to hit corruption with an iron fist. This was the most public that Grand Ayatollah has come in support of a prime minister, and they feel frustrated and disappointed that he did not take it serious enough. Ken Pollack, it seems like now the U.S. might be forced to deal with Muqtad al-Sadr, as he now may have the upper hand in influencing who the next Iraqi prime minister will be. What do you think the U.S. thought process will be in terms of how to deal with Muqtad al-Sadr, where the U.S. and he can work together, where they have to, where they might remain at loggerheads? What does that look like? We're a long way from knowing who's going to rule Iraq, right? The election is just the first part of this process. It's just the appetizer. The main course in the Iraqi political meal is government formation, where the results of the election can be thrown out the window all entirely. So there's no certainty that Muqtada is going to dominate, let alone dictate, this process. If he is the dominant player in the, in the government then I think the U.S. has got its work cut out for it. There are areas of agreement, right? We can all agree that reform, anti-corruption, these are critical in the Iraqi government. The U.S. government should be as helpful as it can be in trying to, to help enable um, Iraq's efforts there. We can also agree that Iraq should be strong and independent. That is something that the United States should want. That is something that Muqtada Sadr wants. Uh, the big problem is that, first, Muqtada does have very complicated ties to Iran. Um, they go back a ways. They have not been completely cut. Uh, it's, you know, it's way too complicated. Uh, and more than that, Muqtada hates the United States, right? And that's going to be a problem. Um, and we're going to have to figure out how do we relate to someone who has defined himself by his enmity toward the United States. I hope that the U.S. government will stick with it. I hope that we will try as best we can. I hope that we will be able to bring him around. But let's also understand, we're not going to be able to bring him around unless we're willing to put our money where our mouth is, right? He needs resources. If the U.S. has nothing to offer, then he has no particular reason to stick with us. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to Iraq's Next Steps on America Abroad. The town hall was recorded this May at the United States Institute of Peace. The discussion was moderated by Joshua Johnson of the program 1A. When we return, we'll talk about how Iran is influencing Iraq and what kind of power the United States now has in Iraq. For more on this program and past programs and for information on how to download our podcast, check out our website at PRI.org. You're listening to Iraq's Next Steps on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. We return now to our town hall discussion. Our panelists are Sarhang Hamsahid, director of the Institute's Middle East programs, Denise Natali, director for strategic research at National Defense University, and Ken Pollack, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Moderator Joshua Johnson, open up the mic to the audience gathered at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm uh, Krishnadev Kalamur with The Atlantic. And uh, my question is, uh, given the current state of U.S.-Iranian relationship, uh, how is this likely to affect government formation in Iraq? The U.S.-Iran relationship. Uh, Ken, why don't you take that question? 
Sure. We're pretty obsessed with what's going on between the United States and Iran. I can understand that. I'm kind of obsessed about it, too. That said, I think it may have some impact on Iraq. I wouldn't exaggerate it. The way I'd put it is I think that Iran, as it moves forward, probably is looking at Iraq and thinking that Iraq is even more meaningful to it than it was in the past. I mean, Iraq is a very important country for Iran. But if the Iranians are looking at uh, renewed American sanctions, the potential for the Europeans to be forced to join it, right, Iraq looms larger because, first of all, the Iranians make money off of Iraq. That's very important. There is smuggling through Iraq. And beyond that, they want to make sure that Iraq is not going to be strong, unified, and in the U.S. camp. Now, I think that those things are all important, but they're not hugely important. I think that that may influence how Iran approaches Iraq's government formation. But again, I think that Iran had big interests in Iraq's government formation to begin with. And while I think that that may add a little bit of urgency to what the Iranians are up to and making sure that the coalition that comes out is going to be one that allows the Hashtashabi, the Shia militias to do their thing and allows Iran to smuggle as it likes and allows Iran to manipulate currency as it likes... Given the likely weakness of whatever Iraqi government emerged from that government formation process and the ability of Iran to influence it, I'm not sure that what's just happened between the U.S. and Iran greatly changes that. Denise? I wouldn't just say it's just not just about these two actors as well. It, what else? Other things are going on. The integration of Iraq into the region, the reestablishment of Iraq's relationships with Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and other groups in the region that could push back some of those concerns. It's not just U.S.-Iran relations. Um, how strong this Iraqi nationalist current will be. That, that's where I would be focusing on, not the Iran-U.S. dimension only. Why focus on that nationalist current, Denise? Because this is what this was about. We've spent so much time over the last couple of years, not we, everybody in this room, looking at Sunni Shia Kurd. How many times you can just write about using those words because this is what we thought Iraq was supposed to be. Remember the breakup of Iraq? Remember the wonderful maps with three colors? It just didn't work out that way. You know how easy it could have been. And all of this time, you know, we underestimated, not we, many, Iraqi nationalism. You don't underestimate Iraqi nationalism, that this was a push for a civic Iraqi nationalist identity. And this is what's played out. At demonstrations I was at last November in Tahrir Square, the communists were with the Sadrists. And they were all singing the Iraqi national anthem, draped in the Iraqi flag, talking about all of these things that had nothing to do with sectarianism. And I would say some of that's even breaking down in terms of ethnic relations as well. Not all Kurds obviously look at themselves as Iraqis, but there's a good segment of Kurdish people right now, particularly the youth, who are saying we want a democratic Iraq as opposed to a Kurdistan region that can't function. So that's why I say push back against the sectarianism, because this is what this was about. Sir Hung, and then we'll get to our next audience question. I think the cross-sectarian sentiments that has been enhanced in Iraq mostly came as a result of the military defeat of ISIS, where the Iraqis fought a common enemy, yes, supported by the global coalition and the United States, but that fighting a common enemy, that positive energy did come into the political space, and so far it's mostly rhetoric, and it reflected in the formation of the some of the coalitions. The true test of continuation will be in the government that has to come. The United States 
and Iran are both actively now trying to help expedite the government formation process. They both have interest. There is the game of numbers, who can f have the largest number of seats. Muqtada Sadr has a path uh, at that, but that doesn't mean he can ignore the Fatah because they have forces on the ground, they have access, they have weapons, they have political resources. Let's see if we can squeeze in a few more quick questions before our time is up. Yes, sir. Hi, Douglas Sullivan with the New American Manta International. In some ways, you have to feel bad for the new next Iraqi prime minister because you have these two demands from this populist base that are clearly in tension. You have a demand that corruption be deeply reduced, but at the same time, they want no cuts in the public sector, the bloated Iraqi public sector, which makes the corruption really possible on a grand scale. Um, how's the next uh, prime minister going to cut that baby or that knot or whatever metaphor we want to use? Ken? I think this is a great question. I think this is one of the biggest problems that we face out there. And we can add a few more things into it. You know, Sir Hung's great point before about it needs to be an inclusive government, right? Because you want to have people all feeling like they're part of it. Um, the points that I made about having a, a, an, an efficient bureaucracy that actually gets things done, all of these points run at cross purposes, right? And add to that the fact that you've got a badly fragmented political system that is unlikely to produce a strong prime minister. Someone who can say, well, look, I've got 95, 100 seats in the parliament. Everybody's going to have to go with me. We haven't got that. So I think you're absolutely right. I think that the next prime minister, structurally right now, wow, does he or she really have their work cut out for them? You could probably make the case that they are set up for failure unless they get a tremendous amount of external assistance which can only come from the United States and its coalition partners. And so far, I don't see a Trump administration that has any interest in doing that. But I think it's going to be incredibly hard for the next Iraqi prime minister without it. I wonder if historically low oil prices factors into that. It seems like if oil prices are lower, that revenue decreases, the gravy train slows down significantly. Are there factors that are forcing Iraq to make some of these changes just by dint of the reality of Iraq today? Or... Is this really a change that someone's going to have to generate from within? What could happen, first, oil is about $80 a barrel now. So like 70, that is different than $40 a barrel. And even if it goes down to 70, let's just say, by virtue of the fact there's going to be priorities, um, this may give the Kurdistan regional government more leeway. Just the way that they had to make some deals. They had to make some deals with the KRG because they didn't have enough money to pay these salaries. So we'll split, for example, we'll split your budget and you can go export what you need to, to pay your salaries and we'll look the other way. For, that may enhance corruption because there is an inverse, there could be an inverse relationship. But what I'm saying is how are they going to get around it, to answer your question, allow more of this flexibility, creativity and funding so they don't have to be responsible for some of these outlying areas financially. I think, I mean, that I don't see how the Iraqi government, again, if oil prices were low, would be able to provide the services, because this is not just about corruption, too. Corruption is part of it. It's, can you provide the services? Can you co-opt away what the PMUs or what some of these militias are doing in the localities? Providing services, fixing potholes, providing salaries. If you want the militia to go away, it's not just about grievance. It's about opportunities. So either the Iraqi government is going to have to pay or those militias are still going to be there. I think we have time for one more question. Yes, sir. Eric Gustafson with Epic. Um, having followed this as long as I have, I feel like there's been this kind of rerun that we keep going through, and it's about losing, uh, taking our eyes off the ball. 
So when we look at Iraq right now, the challenges, the opportunities that are there, uh, what's most important in terms of resources from the United States and the international community to make a difference, to break the cycle of violence in Iraq? Why don't we start, Ken, with you? I think there are two points that I'd like to make with regard to this one. First, I think that American military forces are very important for Iraq. At the end of the day, as I said before, this all began with the security vacuum that we created in 2003. Right? And we saw again in 2011 when American forces aren't present, and they don't need to be in enormous quantities, but they need to be there to reassure average Iraqis that the warlords and the militias aren't going to go crazy. They need to be there to, as a caution to the warlords and militias not to go crazy. They need to be there as an enforcement mechanism so that people will act peacefully and that violence will not be used for political purposes. That's critical. And if that doesn't happen, nothing else matters. And too frequently in Iraq, we've seen that happen. And when that does, the, all the well-meaning political leaders in the world don't matter for anything. The second piece, you know, here I'd say that where the United States spends money, to me, is less important. I could certainly talk through different programs that I think that are better, that I think that are worse. What I think is most important is the United States making a commitment, committing to Iraqis, saying to Iraqis, we're not abandoning you, we're going to put resources into Iraq, it doesn't have to be an enormous amount, and in an ideal world, an American long-term commitment. Again, I keep saying this, I'll say it again, I'd like to see the United States commit to one to two billion dollars a year for at least five years, right? And then you use that to build a wider international aid package. Denise? I think we should continue to train border security, continue to provide uh, security assistance, technical intelligence assistance is what my understanding what, what, what calls for, for their security sector. Uh, I would be less inclined to provide large amounts of aid, but to encourage local entrepreneurship, to encourage the types of agreements between private sector and trying to foster an Iraqi private sector. You know, you have a whole young generation of really vibrant, hardworking Iraqi youth who are starting up, doing all these little startups and, and technologically driven businesses, and I would encourage that. And third is to enhance a strong, sovereign Iraqi state. I'll say Iraqi sovereignty, um, to look at Iraqis at Iraq and to, and to move away from the language of Sunni Shia Kurd and anything we write because it's really aggravating to most Iraqis. That's what I would do. Sarhang? I think the most important contribution and support um, the United States can give to Iraq is to help the political train to move forward in a truly inclusive manner. Inclusive not in the number of ministers uh, representing each community, but the issues that need to be addressed to be on the agenda of the government. Uh, and that's in all my meetings uh, in Iraq with all layers of government and the community, that is a key ask. Without it, uh, I don't think we can move forward. In Iraq, uh, a key role will be also now a new development with the withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal. The more Iraq is pushed to act against Iran, I think the more Iran will get aggressive, the more difficult the Iraqi leaders from all the spectrums will have difficulty facing that Iranian pressure. I think investing in the institutions of Iraq to go, grow stronger and represent the people and work for the people will be one of the best ways to deter against uh, the role of Iran.
Sarhang Hamasai, the Director of Middle East Programs at the United States Institute of Peace. Denise Natali, the Director for Strategic Research and a Distinguished Research Fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies. And Ken Pollack, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Ken, Denise, Sarhang, thanks for talking to us. That was Joshua Johnson from the WAMU program 1A. He was hosting our town hall discussion, Iraq's Next Steps, at the U.S. Institute of Peace this past May. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Shoshi Shmulevitz with additional production help from Flan Williams. Nolan Schneider provided our theme music and assisted with sound design. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW and Bill Vaughn at the United States Institute of Peace. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the Public Radio International app, or by visiting our website, pri.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Adeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI, Public Radio International.